Welcome to the Chasing Capital podcast, where we focus on notable VCs, operators, and founders in their 20s and 30s, giving insight and advice to university students. I'm quite excited to have Nikki Kamra as the fifth guest on the show today, seed investor at Streamline Ventures, focusing on automation, API companies, and data science innovations. Previously, Nikki led growth and ops at Skillshare and holds a BA in econ from Columbia and an MBA from London Business School. Let's dive in. So just to start off, I was wondering if you could describe your path from growth and operations to venture and the crossover between the two. Yeah. Um, so so basically, you know, I studied economics at Columbia, um, worked at a the my senior spring, I actually worked at a, a startup in uh, New York and then ended up joining a startup in in California where I worked on the strategy and operations team. Um, you know, I think for me, a lot of people at Columbia kind of go into these, you know, consulting or business, especially, sorry, or iBanking um, finance roles. And when I was graduating, you know, startups weren't, very few people from my class went uh, into a startup directly. Um, and so strategy and operations kind of seem like this great way to get this, you know, business operation strategy, kind of these like consulting S chops, the PowerPoints, the Excel, um, the strategic decisions uh, that, uh, you know, I would have gotten in a consulting firm, um, but could do it in a fast-paced startup um, in in the valley, and so kind of decided to do that um, out of school. and And it was a great, you know, Wildfire was a really fun company. It was two hundred people, big sales team, and a lot of what we did was support the go-to-market team in terms of thinking about compensation and territories and um, you know, planning as well as the executive team. So it's a great way to kind of learn a ton of stuff that I think would have been really rare at, at, at 22. Um, I joined a company after that called Skillshare, which was 10 people, um, kind of really just wanting to join a startup where I could work in an impactful, impactful field. Um, actually started as a community manager. So uh, Skillshare is an online platform where anyone can take uh, take online classes, mostly for creative skills. And some of the classes are created in-house and you know, kind of like masterclass or big productions, but most of the classes are actually uh, created by the teachers themselves at home. Um, and so I actually started to build out the, the, the self-service side of the platform and scaled that from zero to 5,000 people. Um, so, you know, when you're a team of 10, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to grow the company, you kind of get your hands in all the pots. Um, and so just kind of, you know, as, as new problems came up, new strategic directions came up, just kind of took on more and more. And so a lot of, you know, what, uh, drove the the scope of my job was just, you know, hey, we're going to do this now. Can Nikki take it on? Let's think about category expansion. Let's think about international expansion. Um, you know, how do we build out our account management program? And so just kind of thinking about how do you spin something up from zero to one, um, test it out, iterate, improve, find someone to take it on and, and move on to the next thing or, or kind of keep adding it. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, I think that was great. Um, growing from 10 people to 40 people. And I think, you know, I have no idea now Skillshare, that was probably four years ago. Now Skillshare is probably 200 people um, just raised their series D um, oh. kind of see a lot and uh, you know, understand, you know, how do you make decisions quickly? How do you 
iterate quickly? How do you figure out when something's working to double down on it? How do you think about trying out a new tactic? Um, are all kind of things that my portfolio companies at Streamlined um, are figuring out today, right? So, so Streamlined is a, a, a seed firm. So we invest, you know, I think most of our companies are anywhere from one to 10 employees when the time we invest and are all figuring out, you know, how do they build a team? How do they create a go-to-market strategy? How do they think about culture and org, org structure? Um, and all things that we kind of thought about at, at Skillshare. Um, so I think that's been really helpful as I've transitioned from operating into venture. In venture, you do a lot of um, finding new deals and building relationships and, and building partnerships. And so a lot of thinking about, Hey, you know, how do we kind of grow the platform? How do we find, how do we find teachers to teach on Skillshare? There's actually a lot of similarities in the day-to-day -day workflow of, you know, how do I find the best companies out there? Um, kind of, you know, I don't think people think of growth marketing as a traditional path to venture, but I think it's been a really great skill set to have as I, as I, you know, start this career as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it's also not just like traditional operating experience. I mean, as you said, growth marketing, but also seems like a lot of product thinking you had to, you had to kind of develop that, like that intuition throughout, I guess, Skillshare especially. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're building something and you're only 10 people, five on the business team, a lot of that is product related. Yeah. Um, and I think especially when you're, you know, I think a lot of product is thought about is like, what is just the digital experience that the customer is interacting with? But ultimately for most companies, the product is a lot more than that, right? It's not just the website. It's, you know, um, for Airbnb, the product is the house you're staying in and the relationship you have with the host and all of these things is the product that the customer experiences, not just the mobile app, right? And so I think um, we had to have a lot of product thinking, even in aspects that weren't, you know, just the digital product or, or in the scope of the, the product team. Yeah, and you mentioned that like back back when you were in school and deciding not to go down this kind of like tried and true path of consulting or banking, which is still definitely very prevalent at Columbia today. Um, what like what kind of conviction did you have to allow yourself to to not to not do that and basically do something that was pretty was pretty not typical? To be totally transparent, I wanted to do consulting. So when I was when I was a senior, I you know, was like, okay, well, these are the two jobs everyone does in econ. They do consulting or they do investment banking. And I didn't know what investment banking was. Um, and so I said, hey, look, consulting sounds cool. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I went through the recruiting and, you know, did, I probably did like 50 interviews with different consulting firms. It just wasn't, it wasn't sticking. And, um, you know, I think for me, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, right? So this idea that a, a startup was this super risky, crazy venture, um, wasn't really the paradigm I grew up in, right? And I think if, and I think seeing that at Wildfire, so many of the people on the team were from Stanford, from uh, from Santa Clara, from um, the UCs, and it was just more common being in California to start your career in tech. And I've seen, you know, so many people that have started their career in tech just do so so well just by having been in tech companies over the past, you know, eight to ten years. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I wouldn't say it was this. Um, me going against the grain intentionally, um, but, you know, feel very lucky uh, that I, that I did, especially as I've seen, I actually at Skillshare, um, you know, so I had a, I had a final round at, I remember had a final round at BlackRock um, in my fall. 
semester of Columbia and I didn't get the job and, you know, was started building my team at Skillshare four years later and was interviewing someone who had that job, um, you know, and so <laughs> the world just works in funny ways and you pick up so many great skills at these companies that you can either decide to build a career at those firms or that type of industry. Um, but those skills also are, are really cross-functional and I think you know, was lucky to have built that skill set at, at Wildfire um, on the strategy and operations team and kind of get a lot of those, those um, hard, uh, hard skills that uh, have become very valuable as I've, as I've scaled in my career. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I was curious why you chose to pursue an MBA internationally at London Business School. And, and do you think that that, like doing it like an, an international MBA as opposed to like one of the myriad of schools in the U.S., gives you a unique perspective? I, I had a couple friends applying and, um, you know, uh, just thought it would be a great experience to live abroad with a lot less of uh, risk of doing it with my career. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of business schools uh, kind of teach the same stuff. So you, they have their own flavors, but you most, most of the top business schools, you're reading HBS cases, you're reading the same cases, you're learning corporate finance and back, like you're learning all the same stuff. Um, so the cool thing about going to London Business School was that they actually, the first year of school there, you don't sit next to anyone from the same country as you. Yeah. Um, and it's super diverse and you kind of get the experiences in the classroom that I think are pretty comparable to most business schools, but out of the classroom, you know, going to people's weddings in Beirut or uh, having discussions with people about how the school systems and soccer systems in different countries are different and, you know, just these kind of this, this personal, um, personal growth and, and perspective that I think um, is really unique to London Business School. And uh, so I do think it gives a different perspective just having that, that um, those relationships with people from all over the world that I might not have had. I certainly wouldn't have had in, in San Francisco. I think, you know, New York is a much more international city. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I was a little worried coming back to San Francisco. Oh, you didn't go to Stanford. You didn't go to Harvard. Is it going to matter? And I think, you know, in general, it was kind of like, they, they kind of think of Stanford and then, you know, everywhere else is kind of the same in, in the Valley as a general rule. So didn't, you know, they're, they're like, oh, the good one in London. Okay. Okay, like LSE, LVS, we don't know, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. So um, I uh, turned out okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, and currently at Streamline, do you invest internationally or is it more so focused in the US? It's very US focused. Um, so basically, we're a seed fund and we, we invest in mostly Bay Area companies. It's, it's just me and the founding partner on the investment team. And we're both in the Bay Area and we do about a deal a month. So for us to be helpful uh, outside of a very limited geography is, is tougher just being a small team. Um, but we, we have invested actually in a few companies in, in Latin America. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, I think just thinking about the so much change and, and growth happening in the region and seeing a lot of amazing companies uh, pop up. So um, Ola's, uh, the, the founding partner of Streamline, invested in a company called Rappi, which is kind of a mix of DoorDash and Instacart and, you know, saw, saw that trend happening in the U.S. And then, oh, there's so much potential in LATAM for that, too. And since then, you know, have kind of done a, a few companies where where those that potential is there as well in, in the region. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that there've been, I, I don't want to say clones, but there've been kind of like the like, same kind of concept that's done well in the US is now starting to be applied more and more in, in LATAM and it's, and I mean, like Rappi has been a pretty huge success. 
Yeah. And I think there's just a lot of opportunity for, uh, you know, I think it's a consumer to get up to get up to like parity in, you know, the U S in, in, you know, really fast growing economies that they have in, in Latin America and just a lot of opportunity for the same type of quality of, of products that we love, um, in the region as well. So it's great. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and that's true in mind, the current your focus is, is on the kind of state of science, like applied ML sector, right? Or is yeah. that, is that, yeah, so I was just curious, like what made you want to, I mean, I don't know if this was premeditated either, but like what made you interested in focusing on that? And also when you're like, when you're evaluating these companies, because the main like competitive advantage might just be the actual underpinning technology. How do you go about kind of sussing out whether, whether they actually have, whether like their advantage is strong or not? You know, I think I've always, I've always worked in software um, or at least, you know, a marketplace, which has a very, you know, similar balance sheet to a software company where the, the main asset is just IP and, and uh, employees um, and, you know, AWS. Um, <laughs> but um, so, so for me, I think I've always just been most familiar in that, in that sector. And I think, you know, at Streamlined, we see as a large thesis, and I think everyone sees this happening in software is that, uh, you know, data science and and access to new data sets and you know applications of that data is transforming every industry that we work in in software right so it's not just about humans interacting with software but software interacting with software and, and apis allowing you know for new automation and new um, services to be extrapolated um, and so there's just so much potential um, across a wide variety of industries um, so you know, we don't just invest in um, applied AI and data science, um, but but it does seem to, even if we didn't, I think it would look very similar to our portfolio just because yeah. that's so much of what is transforming these industries today. Um, that being said, you know, I think we, we work with amazing technical CEOs, but we do really focus on the application, right? So it's not just about, you know, what is this new technology, but as a as a company, you're you're either creating or leveraging this this technology to create an application that's um, really valuable to consumers or businesses. Um, so, in terms of a lot of those CEOs are really amazing technical, advanced um, data scientists or engineers. Um, but sometimes they're business people just leveraging that technology. And I think yeah. you know the way we see it, so much of building a multi-million dollar, billion dollar business is about execution and, and company building and understanding you know with that underlying technology how do you maximize value creation? Um, because at the end of the day, even if you have a ton of IP or have, you know, use something super tough and, and technical that only gives you a pretty short term time advantage because at a certain point, someone else is going to figure it out or leverage it. And so the idea is like, how can you then, you know, create value on top of that, that IP? Yeah. Did it could almost be a disadvantage to have <laughs> to, to basically have like your own, having like your own IP or it's based off some interesting technological insight because it could almost be a crutch in and not wanting to, not wanting to basically, like, as you mentioned, bring the whole package together of like the customer service aspects, the support and all of that. Yeah. And I think so much of, so much of, of building great startups is of course it's the product, but more and more, I think it's just about executing well and, you know, building a company. And, and so, you know, even if you're building an SaaS company or FinTech or e-commerce, a lot of the, the, 
things early stage CEOs are struggling with are the same things, which is how do we hire more engineers? You know, how do we build culture? Like, how do we think of our sales strategy? Um, so, um, you know, the, the technical part is a huge part, but I think as, as venture capitalists, we uh, kind of try and help people, you know, zoom out and think about the company building and, and larger picture and then help with the the you know nitty gritty day to day of kind of getting to that that point. Um, I'll say also you know we uh, I think there's been a conversation of like oh is that really AI or is it you know just a just a, a regression or whatever and I think you know that's that's kind of not really the point. Um, you know if if what you're doing whether it's just um, you know an algorithm or it's actually like very very hard um, you know machine learning. Um, if you're creating value because of the because of that and the application you're building, that's more important to us than you know. Is it really, really you know, uh, intelligent or or not? If that makes yeah, sense. that makes sense. I mean, also in the end, it's really just going to be marketing <laughs> to the. <laughs> so, yeah, that's valid. And I, no, I was curious. Like, are most of these are most of these companies started like is is they started where um, coming out of academia or is it I mean, is it really just a mixture like across the board or some are business. Yeah, actually, I'd say, um, at least recently, I would say most of them aren't really created out of academia, at least for our firm. I know there are firms that do a lot more of that. Um, you know, that being said, I, I think a lot of our CEOs have, uh, CEOs or co-founders have master's or PhDs in, in engineering or data science. So I'm sure their training influences that. But um, we, we do mostly work, I think, with people that are thinking about the CEO and company building side of things um, and not just they've, you know, ex discovered a talent and, uh, sorry, a technology and are, are kind of figuring out how to apply it um, at, at our firm recently, at least. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, as a seed firm, I assume you're very hands-on then with all the, with all the investments, as you said, kind of helping them zoom out, but also kind of iron, iron, uh, like iron out the nitty gritty details of actually like, it, like creating a culture, hiring people, stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it depends on the, the company. We yeah. don't have a, we're a small team. Um, we work really hands-on with, with um, everyone. Sometimes people do their own thing and they're amazing and they don't need help. Um, sometimes they, you know, need some help in certain areas. Sometimes it's every week. So I think it just, for us, it's less about having this playbook, but figuring out a playbook with the founder at the at that time for what they need and, and how we can add, add value. Um, but I'd say it's a lot around, you know, thinking about long-term company building, the steps you need to get there in terms of who to hire, how to fundraise, what to be building towards, and then, you know, the the nitty gritty as much as as much as it makes sense at that time. Yeah, and it's one. It's like, is it priority helping helping these companies kind of raise their next round, like raise their Series A through introductions and stuff like that, or is that not really where you try to add value? Oh, it's definitely we we definitely try and add value. I think that um there and introduce and think about financing strategies, and I think now you know there's so many so many options for financing and um 
you know, it's, I often say, you know, series seed is a length of time, not a, not a round. Um, and there's so many times you can take money from different sources and, and how do you navigate that? What's, what's the right thing, but it's not just about, for us, it's not just about raising that series A, right. And, and not optimizing for your series A valuation, but it's about, you know, your commitment to building, uh, you know, hundred million revenue business over the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, remembering that as these more opportunistic immediate things come up and not just kind of thinking about what's the next step ahead, but also, you know, what's five steps ahead, what's 10 steps ahead um, and how to make a decision today that will maximize your success for the future. But um, absolutely helping with financing is a huge role of, I think all venture capitalists and, and definitely, uh, you know, um, you know, whether it's introducing people to investors or talking to those investors or helping with the deck or thinking through the strategy, those are all things we, we do with our founders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and as you mentioned, there's so many sources of funding now. Um, how, how does, like, how does Streamline and basically like a lot of other seed funds uh, differentiate themselves and try to get into, try to get into the deals that they want to? Yeah, I think that there's a few things. So, um, you know, Streamline's now 10 years old. We're on our third fund. Um, there's been some amazing, successful uh, companies in, in our portfolio and, and amazing founders. And, um, you know, by doing the work with founders that we just talked about, um, you can, you know, build a good reputation that founders tell people, hey, you should work with Streamline or you should meet Eliza or you should meet Nikki. Um, so I think, you know, the work kind of speaks for itself. A lot of the time, the portfolio speaks for itself. Um, I think another way we differentiate is that we really are just focused on seed. And so when we invest, our incentives are very much aligned with the founders um, from that time. And we're not just doing it for uh, an option on the A. Um, you know, <laughs> we have enough skin in the game that we have to care about every company. And we and we really do care about every company. Um, and uh, you know, and so we know seed and we know seed really well. And I think that, you know, a lot of times it can take a lot longer than, than, you know, you think you're going to raise a series A in 12 months, but really it takes three years. And, um, I think having the patience in the hard times is, is more important than, you know, being along for the, the good times. Um, and, you know, finally we're a super lean team. Things are moving so fast. And if we like something, we do it and, and we don't really spin our wheels um, or have like unnecessary processes. And I think that just our ability to move quickly definitely helps us out uh, when things are moving so fast today. Yeah, so so I assume then it's, it's been a deliberate choice to kind of keep the team extremely small over the years. Yeah, yes. Yeah, then that's because I'm not like a lot of these. I mean, a lot of these bigger firms, you know, they have huge analyst teams or really big teams of investors. And I don't know how how useful or, or not useful that really is in the in the, in the long run. But well, we are actually hiring an analyst in case you know there's any Columbia recent grads out here. Um, and uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think it is a small team and. Um, you know, uh, a lot of our companies are really lean when we invest too. So um, I think they kind of get that and the entrepreneurial spirit we have at, at Streamline resonates a little bit. This is kind of a, it's kind of a strange question, but I like on the Streamline website, you have, you know, you talk about your values and how you approach investing. One of them was being extremely can like being candid with your investment, like with your team or invest with the portfolio companies also. But how, how do you balance that with, so like, let's say you want to give advice on how, whether you think their product is absolutely terrible or not, just as a kind of toy example, but how do you balance that with like the, the, the inherently kind of probabilistic like outcomes of these, of these startups where like most people might think something's terrible, but that ends up doing extremely well. 
it's it is super it's a super strange job right where the best the best of the best venture capitalists in the world are wrong the majority of the time right <laughs> and so you have to believe that you have to believe that every company you invest in has the potential to be a billion dollar outcome and you do believe that like i i do believe that but they all have that potential while still knowing you know they're more likely to fail than than not um, so it's a very just odd dichotomy in, in your mind. Um, I think being candid, um, you know, I think that, uh, again, like the way we're structured as a seed firm is like our interests are really aligned with the founders and we really want them, you know, I think we really care about the entrepreneurship journey and, and, you know, understand that for many founders, they're pouring their lives into this and, and they love it so much. And I think that's, you know, from even though I wasn't a, a founder at Skillshare, I was an early employee. And I, I think I, you know, can understand, even if I can't fully understand the weight of that, do do feel that from my, my operating days as well. Um, and so I think just being candid with founders and not saying, hey, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. If it's not great, or like not saying, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't, you probably shouldn't do that in a meeting, or, you know, maybe that's that, you should change this word in your deck, or maybe you should lower your expectations about your next valuation. I think founders understand that that comes from a place of us wanting them to be super successful and their company be, to be successful and their success means our success. And so um, it's never about, uh, it's never personal and it's never, and it's delivered well. And um, it's, it's just about, you know, us wanting them to be as successful as possible. And so I think that's probably a good way to deliver feedback in any context, whether you're a manager or a, or a um, board member or a friend um, at the end of the day, um, right? So, um, you know, I think we don't just want to say everything's everything's great and then pull the wool over over someone's eyes if it if it means they could have made better decisions or better um, had a better outcome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, especially during COVID, I'm sure that was as much appreciated by these companies. Uh, and, yeah. and just bringing it back kind of to like your college experience, I was wondering if there's like a lecture, a book, or even just like a work of fiction in general that that is either that's like either impacted your investing, which I don't know, I don't know if you can find something, or just or like your life in general. Yeah, I mean, I actually was I was thinking about this, and I I'm sure there's a book or something. I mean, I feel like all I learned in econ at Columbia was how to do a partial derivative. <laughs> <laughs> three years of, of school, um, you know, but, but I actually was thinking I, something that's really resonated with me was actually in um, business school and I actually had a finance teacher. And I think it's just good for, for really, really ambitious people like Columbia students where you, you've had all these achievements that mean so much. You got a great SAT score, you got into a great school, you have a high GPA, and there's all these uh, indicators of what success looks like. And it, maybe it's McKinsey, or maybe it's Goldman, or maybe it's Stripe. Um, and, um, you know, his advice was that you should think about when you think about what you want to do in your career, you should think about who you are and the things that come really naturally to you, right? So are you the person always bringing people together? Or are you the person that always likes tinkering with things and taking them apart and, and putting them back together? Or are you the person that um, loves planning and like planning things five years out and is always planning the trip, the vacation for your friends? And then you should think about, you know, what roles, what jobs are those qualities that are really valued in those jobs? Mm -hmm. And I think if, if you can match a job with 
the things that you do really naturally, the qualities that are really valued in that job, you're going to be super successful um, because it's just going to come so naturally to you instead of saying, you know, success is only consulting or success is only iBanking or success is only HBS because at the end of the day, it's going to be so much easier for you to be successful in that role that you'll probably end up being more successful than, than doing something you think is successful, but isn't necessarily a fit for, for you. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, also, also I'm just like bringing like the conversation around burnout and stuff like that. And if you're actually doing something that you're really enjoying, I'm sure the likelihood's a lot, a lot less. And I mean, it seems, it seems like at the end of the day, you really are, you really do have to put a ton of work into whatever you're doing if you actually want to, you know, achieve at, at a certain level. So totally. You might, so if it doesn't feel like work, doesn't feel like you're working really hard at it, it's gonna, it's gonna come a little bit easier. Yeah. I think. yeah. And so for and for college students who want to let's say want to work in tech or want to be like a founder maybe after college or a couple years out, is there a typical piece of advice that that's usually given to them that you think is you think is misguided, or that you just disagree with completely? Um, I think that maybe I can answer them separately, and let me start with the the working in tech. Sure. Um, I think that. A lot of people, when they think about working in tech, they think, okay, I can work at Google or Stripe or Facebook, or I can start my own company. And I think there's so much in between. Um, And there's a lot of research you can do and it's not gonna be easy. They're not gonna recruit on campus. You know, I think there's a lot of companies that are 20 people, 10 people, 50 people, 100 people that are amazing places to start your career, Um, whether that's, you know, being on the SDR team at Wildfire out of out of college or, you know, a strategy and ops associate or, um, you know, being a junior engineer, Um, because I think once you're in tech, it's so much easier to grow into different roles and grow into different companies um, than kind of saying, waiting to do it um, and, and caring too much about your role. So even if, you know, you say, hey, I don't really want to be in sales. I really want to be in marketing. Um, you know, you started a company that's a hundred people and all of a sudden you start in sales and you're amazing and smart. And so you get promoted and all of a sudden you're, you know, running life, life uh, cycle marketing in three years. Right. And so I think, you know, both thinking a little bit more creatively about the companies that are on the table for you mm-hmm. and also um, taking the plunge and doing it. And I think role is, you know, I think the advice that the company you're on is is more important than the role you're at, I do think does hold true a lot of the times, um, a lot of the times. So, um, you know, if you really want to be a PM eventually and you can't find that job, you know, just get into a company where you really like and there's a lot of room for growth. And if you're great, you'll probably end up being a PM there. So um, I think that's my, my advice. Um, in terms of founding companies, again, I guess, you know, I, I don't think it's something you can recommend to someone. Like you have to want it. It's you can't just say, oh, you should be a founder. Like a founder has to want it so much that it's not about the advice you would give um, because yeah. it's a very, very long, lonely, hard journey. And if you're only doing it because you think you should be or someone told you, it's probably gonna not, it's not gonna be easy. Um, it's not gonna be easy anyways. So I would say I wouldn't give advice for someone to be a founder because it wouldn't matter because they have such a burning desire to, to build their company. Yeah, yeah that, 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 definitely, that definitely makes a ton of sense. So do you think that the, I guess, I guess like going off that, I think the kind of the advice that's saying, oh, if you wanna learn like as much as possible in a short amount of time, then you should be a founder. And cause I even hear this for like, oh, college isn't, like you shouldn't even be in college if you're, 
like that motivated you should just try to do something on your own I mean I, I guess as you said if it's if that's coming from the the person internally then maybe it's good but I don't know so what's your opinion on that as kind of a narrative yeah so I think if you do want to learn very quickly, you can be a founder or you can be an operator. You can be an early employee. Um, I will say I learned a lot more at Skillshare than in four years and probably the first two years, honestly, than I think you could learn at a large company um, yeah. just because you got to figure stuff out. Things are breaking all the time. You got to figure, no one else is going to figure them out or tell you how to do them. No one knows. <laughs> Nobody knows how to do anything. So, um, you know, I think that's similar, maybe more similar of an early stage startup and not just a founder than, than people say. Um, in terms of, you know, not going to college, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of being a leader and um, is about emotional maturity mm -hmm. and understanding people and understanding how to motivate them and understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I think sometimes that's just really hard to do when you're 19. Um, some people can do it and they're amazing and, and they really want to do that. Um, sometimes it's just good to have managers and, uh, you know, teachers and, you know, have someone kind of coaching you through those things as you, as you grow. Um, but again, I think there's, there's no right way to do things. I think call, call it's also so hard to say, I understand why more and more people are dropping out of college, right? You're on zoom gosh, you know, <laughs> and it's expensive. Um, so I can't really say, you know, do, do what I did. Um, but, but, um, you don't have to start a company at 19. You can start a company at 30. You can start a company at 50, um, is, is just what I'd say. If, if you think it's something you feel pressured to do at a young age, you don't, you don't have to feel that there's lots of time. Yeah. I think, isn't there some statistic where like actually most of these successful companies were started by people who are a lot older, like in their forties or something. Maybe, I mean, you know, they might've tried a few times too. So. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of amazing founders that are, are 19. I just think that um, there's lots of, there's lots of paths to being a successful entrepreneur and, and lots of great things to learn, not just in that path as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, thanks so much for, taking the time yeah absolutely